Hey guys, welcome back to Questionable. Uh, last week, we spent some time attempting to make a definition of God uh, and also making a teleological argument for his existence. Uh, we used some astrophysics and we used evidence from science to make the argument that God does indeed exist. So today we're going to make one more argument. Uh, this is not the the conclusive evidence of his existence from philosophy or science. This is just two of many arguments. <clears throat> um, so we can explore those in the future sometime. But today we're going to use uh, rationality and philosophy to make an argument for the existence of God based on objective morality. But before we do get too deep in today's topic, let's just take a few minutes and discuss what philosophy is. Uh, most of us have heard this word. Some of us have taken these uh, college classes in philosophy. Um, but in its most basic sense, the word philosophy comes from two Greek words, philo and sophia. Basically, it means uh, a love of wisdom. When you put those two words together, you get love of wisdom. If philosophy is a tree, you have four uh, main branches which stem from it. And these are four categories of uh, four main categories of philosophy that you can study. These are epistemology, that would be uh, the theory of knowledge or of truth. Um, you have the, the branch of ethics, which we'll be in today, which covers a lot of things like morality. You have the branch of logic. And then finally, you have the branch of metaphysics. And uh, there, <clears throat> there are obviously numerous subcategories in these main branches. But today, we're going to be primarily in the branch of ethics, which, like I just said, covers topics of morality. So what is good? Um, those are, that is a common philosophical question. What is good? And ethics is the branch that seeks to answer that. Uh, that said, we might rely on a few other philosophical branches today uh, in today's discussion. But uh, that's, that's our goal. So if philosophy is a love of wisdom... Uh, I think it's important to maybe make a quick distinction between wisdom, knowledge, and information. If, if philosophy is the love of wisdom, it's important to understand that wisdom is something different than knowledge. And knowledge is also something different than information. Uh, I use this example sometimes with friends. Information is understanding that a tomato is a food source. Knowledge claims that the tomato is actually a fruit and not a vegetable but wisdom is choosing not to make tomato smoothies. So the information you have and the knowledge can be used wisely, but it can also be used unwisely. And so we want to be uh, wise with the information and the knowledge that we are exposed to and the philosophy that we are exposed to. Um, <clears throat> however, we're not having a debate on the theory of knowledge today uh, on or wisdom or different terms, semantics, but rather we're using morality as the evidence in the existence of God. So it does us well to understand that there are two broad camps of moral theory views. These two camps are subjective morality and objective morality. And so we have to ask, what is the big difference between subjective morality and objective morality? And then furthermore, does it matter that there's differences? Subjective morality is the view that moral duties or moral principles or moral laws are subject to an individual's preferences or opinions or instincts. A subjective theory would allow one person to claim that abortion is wrong 
while simultaneously allowing another person to claim that abortion is morally acceptable. Simply put, in subject of morality, the moral duties are subject to an individual rather than the individual being subject to the moral duty. So before we get too far off, I'm actually going to make three quick uh, logical arguments. I think we talked about it recently, at least in the round table here with um, the young adults. A logical argument typically is premise, premise, conclusion. And so we're going to make a couple logical arguments that show that subject of morality is uh, undefendable. Premise, uh, here's argument number one, premise number one. If moral subjectivism is true, then there would be no genuine moral disagreement. The way to think about this is if subjectivity is true, all moral theories are equally correct, and so there could not be genuine moral disagreement. It would be impossible to say abortion is wrong and abortion is morally acceptable. That's premise one. Premise two, there is genuine moral disagreement because we've all experienced it, particularly with the example we're using, where people say abortion is wrong and they mean it genuinely, and other people say uh, abortion is morally acceptable and they mean it genuinely. The conclusion, therefore, is that moral subjectivity is not true. Here is a second argument. Premise one, if moral subjectivity is true, all moral judgments would be correct. Premise two, all moral judgments are not correct. We can just stick with our example of, of abortion. Both of, both of these statements would have to be simultaneously correct. <clears throat> Obviously, it does not take much convincing to show that they both can't simultaneously be correct. The conclusion, therefore, is that moral subjectivity is not true. And finally, one more. If moral subjectivity is true, then there would be such thing as true contradictions. This would be something like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and 2 plus 2 does not equal 4. Premise 2. There are no true contradictions because it does not make sense. Therefore, conclusion, moral subjectivity is not true. But there's also other issues with the idea of subjective morality. The idea of moral progress, we, we're always striving as a society, as individuals, to be better morally. So we're trying to make moral progress. But if, the, if subject, subjective morality is true, the idea of moral uh, progress becomes absurd. If we want to have better moral structures, we are instantly implying that there is an objective standard for morality that we cannot quite see, but for which we are aiming. So how could we not see something we are aiming for? How could we aim for objective morality if we can't quite uh, explain it or perfectly understand it? And an example of this is just because there are certain people who are colorblind, it does not negate the fact that there are very real colors experienced by the majority of people. And so because some are incapable of seeing the objectivity of morality does not negate that morality uh, in its objective sense exists. Nonetheless, our task today is not necessarily trying to show the superiority of objective morality over subjective morals, but rather it's to show the inconsistency of individuals, people we know, uh, and sometimes even ourselves when people try to make moral decisions not based on objective moral values. But more than that, we need to show where these objective moral values come from. So before we do that, 
uh, let's let's jump into the philosopher's classroom, and we're gonna play some hypothetical moral dilemmas. I'm gonna give you guys a dilemma here. Uh, for those listening online, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven individuals at this round table with me today, sitting in on this discussion. So I'm gonna give them a moral dilemma that they can respond to, uh, and then you guys can listen in and make your decision as well. So here's the situation. Suppose that you're on a trolley car and you're at the steering wheel. There's a fork in the track just ahead. On that track, or excuse me, on that track that the trolley is currently on, there's four workers that are repairing a part of the track. You attempt to brake, but to your demise, you realize that the brakes do not work. You realize that if the trolley continues on the track that is currently on, it's going to crash into the four workers and kill them. But then you notice that if you turn the trolley car, you could divert it into a separate track, uh, but you notice that there's one worker on the other track, which by steering the trolley onto the new track, you would kill that worker. Unfortunately, at the steering wheel, you have to make the decision to either let the trolley continue on the track which it is currently on, which will lead to the death of four people, four workers, or you can decide to turn the, tro the trolley onto the track with one worker, which will lead to his death. What do you choose to do? Before you decide, we can. I'll give you the moral principle. The principle here is that it is better for four people to remain alive than for one man to remain alive. Um, so let's just see who thinks we should let the trolley remain on the track and kill four people. Showing of hands. Anybody want to let four people die today? Okay, who thinks we should turn the trolley and kill the one man and save four lives? Showing hands. I only see one hand. Wait, none of you guys raised hands in the first one. Okay, really quickly. Who's going to turn the car and kill one? There's two tracks. Two tracks. You either have to kill four. This, this is this is fun. You have to kill you have to let the trolley kill four, or you have to turn the track and the trolley will kill one on the track. There's no brakes are gone. You have to either let the trolley stay on the track. Or you guys They see the trolley. Okay. So we have one that's just going to let the four die. Who wants to turn the trolley and save four lives? One, two, three. We've got, we've got some indecision here. Okay. Let's say out of the four that voted, 75% said turn the trolley. So 75% of our sample are wanting, they, they think the moral principle of of one life sacrificed in order to save four is a good is a good principle. The conclusion then is that it's better for four lives to remain alive than only for one life to remain alive. This theory of morality is called utilitarian theory. Uh, utilitarian theory of morality basically means that it is most beneficial. It is a most beneficial practice of morality for the majority of a population. And so we could ask ourselves, who wouldn't want to live? in a country where four lives are more valuable than one life. I think most people would choose that sort of country to live into. 
Uh, this utilitarian view of moral duties is all about the consequence of moral choices. What is the outcome? How can we reduce the suffering? We could reduce the deaths of four by letting one die. It doesn't sound like a terrible place to live. But before you move to this country, let me give you another hypothetical situation. Suppose you're a medical doctor. Today you have four patients, four men, that each require a different vital organ transplant in order for them to remain alive. One needs a heart, another a kidney, one needs a liver, and the fourth man needs a lung. Without these organ transplants, each of these patients are going to die the same way that the four on the trolley track would die. But before you can perform surgery, you need uh, organs to be able to, to perform the surgeries to save these men's life. In the meantime, you have a regularly scheduled checkup with a fifth man. He came in because he's been having headaches uh, and he just needs a checkup. He's not sure if it's something more serious. Turns out he's a healthy man. He just isn't getting enough hydration or enough sleep. But it dawns on you as the doctor that he has four healthy organs. So do you tell this man that he needs to undergo immediate surgery and harvest his organs and save four lives? Or do you let the four men die? Let's take a quick vote. Who's going to let the four men die? The, 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 now we're letting more men die. Okay. So the consequences are the exact same in both situations. But the instincts lead us to think different things. So in the first case, we wanted one man to die so that four might live. But in the second case, we're letting four die even though the consequences of each situation is the exact same outcome. That's just a fun way to show that our instincts are not always the best judges of our moral duties or our obligations. So the consequences and the moral principle are the exact same, but the outcome of letting four live and taking the life of one are very different in the two situations. Uh, again, we could say that the conclusion of the matter is that the, the mere outcome of moral choice is not sufficient for us to determine what is right or what is wrong. We have the innate, I think most people have the innate understanding of the moral duty, do not kill. And yet, in the trolley, most of us would consciously choose to kill one worker rather than let four die. But as the doctor, we refuse to kill one man in order to save the lives of the other four. This isn't in my notes, but it's maybe another discussion for another topic. There also is a moral difference between allowing someone to die versus consciously killing someone. The dilemma remains the same. You're consciously turning to steer to kill the one and let the four live. Same, same thing with the doctor. Uh, so where could we get these... Uh, these senses of, of do not kill, these things that seem to transcend uh, time and space, how peculiar that our sense of moral res responsibilities have changed with only a slight tweaking of the circumstances. It's evident to me that our moral duties come from somewhere that transcends our natural instinct or preferences as we have just demonstrated. Where could these moral responsibilities come from? As we've already discussed, even though we can't use our gut instinct to make moral decisions, we all have 
uh, within us ideas of moral duties. If I give Josh $5 and if I give Abby $100, both for doing the same job, I would be told that I am not being fair. And my accusers would be confident that I would understand the rule of fairness. The, the standard of fairness that they appeal to, they would assume that I would know. And they assume correctly or accurately that the standard of fairness is the same for both of us, even though they had no previous encounter with me. But where does this concept of fairness come from? And why should we use fairness as a measuring stick for morality? There is a standard that uh, is built into every human being about what is fair, what is justice, what is good, that killing is wrong, um, what is courageous, different different moral subcategories. The list could go on. Now, if you're listening to this and you're an atheist, you would, out of necessity, accept that God could not have made us because something that doesn't exist cannot create something else. And yet we do exist, so to follow the atheistic description or the naturalist description of human life, we as humans have evolved uh, over millions of years into sophisticated animals, but ultimately we remain a type of animal. We are all mammals, at least as human beings, we're all mammals. Uh, Gorillas are mammals, cats are mammals, mice are mammals. But here is where we run into some serious intellectual problems that begin to arise for the atheist. Cats eat mice. And in and of itself, there's no moral dilemma that cats eating mice is, is breaking some sort of moral law. But if I, on the other hand, also a mammal, choose to eat my neighbor, I would be called an immoral cannibal and be put into prison. But according to the atheistic worldview, if I'm just a clump of more developed or a more developed animal uh, and I'm just a clump of uh, predetermined biological clump of cells, then why would it be wrong for me to eat my neighbor if I'm simply a product of, uh, of evolution? And so this, this brings us to the point of necessity that objective morality must exist or else every idea of justice that we have in society is absurd. Um, the fact that we put men in prison for breaking laws is absurd. Uh, the, pra- the, the fact that we praise or re- we reward somebody for courage or for honesty, uh, that's all completely nonsensical if there is no such thing as objective morality. And because we've uncovered some inconsistencies, we're going to try to show uh, the objectivity of morality. In any country of the world, if I consciously take the life of another because I do not want them to exist... I will be punished for murder. This is an example of one objective moral value that transcends culture, any period of history, any socioeconomic status, any race or ethnicity, religious affiliation, or a religious affiliation, age, gender, or any other criteria. This principle of do not kill someone transcends all other criteria. So we can say that there's at least one objective moral responsibility that exists. And as we come to a quick conclusion, we're going to make a logical argument, another set of premises and conclusion uh, that gives us evidence in the existence of God. If God does not exist, here's premise one, objective morals, objective moral duties, excuse me, do not exist. 
as we just gave the example, if we are just a clump of cells, then it would be uh, there would be no such thing as morals. We could we could eat other mammals as we pleased, even if they were other humans. So if God does not exist, objective moral duties do not exist. Premise two: Objective moral duties do exist. Do not kill someone for fun, or for no reason at all. That's a that's a premise. The conclusion, therefore, is that God does exist. So, if we've ever known something was either right or wrong, or we've appealed to fairness, or we've appealed to some transcendent standard that we expect somebody else to understand, it is because there is a moral lawgiver that is outside of our natural world who designed you to know that there is a higher order of morality and that you are subject to it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Next week, let's look at the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. Be sure to leave your questions and your thoughts, um, and we will try to address those. Thank you.